You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. My global career as a female FBI agent with Kathy Stearman. Beijing, New Delhi, Kathmandu. Hang on, I thought you said FBI, not CIA. Well, I did. Kathy Stearman was an FBI legat who lived and worked in all of those capital cities. Well, I've heard of the ambassador and the station chief, but not the legat. Well, that's why you need to listen to this week's episode of SpyCast. Kathy Stearman is a retired FBI special agent and author of It's Not About the Gun. I know the title sounds like Lance Armstrong's It's Not About the Bike, but Kathy is not a sociopath who will rip your heart out after you invest in her story. I promise. Kathy spent a large part of her career working Chinese counterintelligence, including time in San Francisco and New York City. I hope the Bureau has a hefty housing allowance. And she speaks fluent Mandarin. Well, I'm so pleased to speak to you. I really enjoyed your book, Kathy. I really enjoyed chatting before we came on air. And I'm looking forward to speaking to you a little bit more about your remarkable career. Thank you, Andrew. This is such a pleasure and really an honor because I looked at a lot of your podcasts and listened to quite a few. You don't have a lot of FBI agents on your podcast, so I feel like I am really honored to be one of those FBI agents that you've chosen to speak today. So thank you. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about your book. The title's interesting. It's not about the gun, lessons from my global career as a female FBI agent. So just before we dig down a little bit deeper, just tell us what's the book about and why did you set out to write it? The book is mostly about my career overseas as a legal attache, and most people don't realize that the FBI actually works overseas. They think that we are a domestic agency, and we are a domestic agency. However, we have over 70 offices around the world, and we work out of the American embassies, wherever we are. And some FBI offices overseas cover a city, some cover one country, and some offices cover multiple countries. So we cover a lot of territory overseas. 
And when I was overseas as a legat, I came back and I would speak to some of my colleagues and they would say, so what's it like being overseas? What's it like working with, as an FBI agent overseas? And so I would just tell these funny stories because most of my work was classified. So I really couldn't talk about that. So I just told about the funny things that would happen to me. And people kept saying, you really need to write this down. And so I wrote little notes to myself here and there thinking, I don't want to forget this. I don't want to forget this moment, this experience, and, and maybe I will write it later. And then after I retired, I started writing all of these stories that I had jotted down notes for. And I really just wanted it to be kind of a, a lighthearted, funny book about, hey, this is what can happen to you as an FBI agent overseas. I realized that I actually had a lot more to say. And then it became more about me as a woman in the FBI, me as a female legal attache, because for a couple of years, I was the only female legat in the entire FBI. And I wanted to tell those stories. And I wanted to encourage young women to join the FBI, because I know that the culture of the FBI won't change unless we have more women in the organization, more diversity, more minorities. And so the book sort of morphed into, hey, here's a bunch of funny stories to know this is me, this is my experience, and this is what I want young women to see if they choose to move into a career like this. One of the things that I want to explore today is to talk a little bit more about being a female FBI agent, because that's part of the subtitle of the book. I don't want to be one of those people that's like, every time a woman's on, we have to focus on gender. But because it is a central strand of your book, it would be good to pull on it a little bit more. A legat in the FBI overseas, it's not something that a lot of people know about. We hear a lot about station chiefs and ambassadors, and we know the CIA are overseas and embassies, but yeah. Why is this story not better known? And tell us a little bit more about what the legats do. Well, and again, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is because after I retired, and actually even before I retired, I would give presentations and people in the audience would say, I had no idea that the FBI works overseas. What do you do? What is a legal attache? And I realized that most of the United States, most of the people in the United States have no clue that we are overseas. And frankly, <laughs> if I'm being honest, a lot of the people within the FBI have no idea what a legal attache <laughs> does. Because I would get all these requests when I was legat from people in the FBI, and I would write back and say, well, just so you know, we don't have the authority to go out and shoot somebody in another country <laughs> or arrest somebody in another country. So I realized that I want people to know that the FBI is overseas because I'm very proud of what we do internationally. So a legal attache is the head of an FBI office. And most of the legal attache offices are very small, maybe three to four people, maybe one of the largest maybe has 10 people. So we're not a large office in the embassy, but we are part of the inner intelligence circle. And we do have a special relationship with the State Department and the CIA and all the other government agencies represented at the embassy. And what the FBI does is we really act as the person between our foreign counterparts in whatever country we're working in and then the FBI. For instance, if the FBI has an investigation or a case, 
and there's a nexus to the country I'm working in, then I work with my foreign counterparts in that country to get evidence or intelligence or information or whatever it is we need for our investigations and vice versa. If that country I'm working in has a nexus to the United States, then I help them get what they need in order to carry on their investigations or court appearances or whatever it is they need. So I'm actually the person that works. I'm the, I'm the middle person or the middle woman, I should say. <laughs> and we don't have the authority to arrest someone overseas unless we actually have the permission of the country we're in or we're working a joint investigation. And like I said, one of our most important partners at the embassy is the CIA. That's just a given. Anything that we do, we coordinate with them and other government agencies to make sure we're not stepping on any any toes. Other people may have investigations that I don't know about, and they'll come to me and say, hey, we're doing this. We want to make sure it's not messing up anything that you've got going on, and vice versa. Working in the embassy with my counterparts is actually... It's like a small microcosm of the United States, and it was absolutely so much fun, and I loved every second of it. Wow. And who would be your counterparts overseas? Would it be domestic intelligence agency like MI5, or would it be an institution that combined counterintelligence and and law enforcement like the FBI, or would it be something else? In most of the countries I worked and I covered, there is a separate law enforcement entity versus an intelligence entity. But I actually, I worked most closely with, like in India, it was a CBI, Central Bureau of Investigation. But I also worked with their intelligence bureau. And anything that I did with the intelligence bureau, again, I would coordinate with the agency to make sure that we're on the same page and I wasn't stepping on any toes. The same in China. I worked with the Ministry of Public Security, which is the equivalent of the FBI, but I also worked with the MSS, which is it's their intelligence arm. And again, in coordination with the agency, I really made sure that as the legal attache that I coordinated with the CIA because as we all know, before 9-11, there was a lot of, well, you didn't tell us this and we didn't tell you that. And I think that we've all really tried to work harder together as a unit moving forward so that another 9-11 doesn't happen. And for me, that was pretty easy because I was willing to work with the agency. Unfortunately, a lot of it is very personality driven. And there are people who are like, no, this is my secret and you can't have it and vice versa. But for the most part, I can't say that about my time overseas. It was fantastic. I had very, very good relationships with the CIA and some of my best friends are in the CIA. It would be good to dig into some of the places that you were posted. You were in some really interesting places. But before we get there, how does one get selected as a legal attache? What do you do? Is it a regular FBI agent who you get to a certain stage and then you apply? And and then if you go down that route, do you, it sounds like you stayed in it. So if you do that, you're not doing a counterintelligence post in the States and then moving on to counter narcotics or something and then going back to be a legat. Is it more of a separate stream and how do you get into that stream? 
It's really not separate. I think that if you want to be a legal attache, you definitely have to have some years in the bureau, at least in my opinion. Now, I do know that there are some legats who go overseas and they don't have that many years of experience under their belt. But I knew as a woman, I was never going to get a legal attache position unless I had a lot of years under my belt, a lot of experience. And I had worked criminal work. I had worked international terrorism. But for the most part, I was a counterintelligence agent. And I started doing that in the mid-90s, Chinese counterintelligence, after the FBI sent me to the Defense Language Institute out in Monterey, California, for two and a half years, where I learned Mandarin Chinese. And generally, you go and you learn a language like that, or you already speak a language, because your goal is to, at some point, work overseas. And so that pretty much was my goal. I wanted to work overseas because I loved intelligence work. I loved the counterintelligence piece. And that really was what I did. I worked counterintelligence and then I went to FBI headquarters. You pretty much have to do that to go to headquarters and work in some type of supervisory position and then just sort of get to know the people in the International Operations Division do a couple of temporary duty assignments overseas so that you get that experience under your belt. And then you start applying for legal attache positions. It's very competitive. It was very competitive then. And from what I understand, it's even more competitive now. Okay. I was actually going to ask that because I would imagine it would be extremely competitive. I remember in the Air Force, everybody wanted a posting to Cyprus But very few people (laughs) managed to get it. But with that, it was more luck of the draw. But with this, it sounds it's more about the competition. So tell us a little bit more about that. Is it like one in 10,000 chance or is it like one in 100? Or do a lot of people rule themselves out? Or does it attract a lot of people that are just, if I do another posting in Hicksville, USA. I'm going to go postal, so I need to go overseas. (laughs) Yeah, help us understand that process. I think that a lot of people in the FBI think that being a legal attache and working overseas, and I say this in the book, at least back when I was in the LEGAT program, some people kind of thought it was like the wine and cheese circuit where <laughs> you didn't work that hard and you go to dinner parties and you stand around and somebody serves you a drink and it's not that way at all. Now, I'm sure in some offices it might be that way, but in the offices I served in, it was 24-7 every single day, every single week, year round. And I hope that the FBI has sort of changed that perception of what the LEAT office is and what it does. So yeah, I think that a lot of people will look at the job and then again, they think, well, I can go overseas and I can still be an FBI agent. I can still carry my gun and show my badge and have the same authority as I have in the United States. And that's not true either. It's a very high profile position. However, You don't have the authority that you have here in the U.S. And pretty much everything you do, you're coordinating with somebody, whether it's somebody in the embassy and you have to let your ambassador know pretty much everything you're doing. So you have to make sure you're not going to screw things up so that he's embarrassed, the United States is embarrassed. But really, it's a lot of working with your counterparts from the country you're in, but also my counterparts from other countries, like allied countries, like their version of the legal attache from the UK or Australia, New Zealand, France, places like that. 
I worked very closely with them. So I think that by now, more people in the FBI realize what a legal office does. Back then, maybe not so much. Maybe the FBI should direct them to our conversation today, Kathy, and they can learn a little bit more about it. Here's hoping. <laughs> well, that's really fascinating. So tell us a little bit more about the language component of it and also, yeah, it's language for a purpose, right? It's language so that you can do the things that you outlined, the connections, the liaising, the collaborating, those sorts of things. So tell us a little bit more about the language and about the, it sounds like one of those positions that really needs a high level of emotional intelligence to be able to navigate the politics and the people and the personalities and institutions. So yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a long-winded way to say, tell us a little bit more about the language component and about the skills that a legat needs to do their job effectively. The language component, I think, is very important. And I went to the Defense Language Institute to learn Mandarin Chinese with the hopes that I would one day get to be a legal attache in China. And I was actually told by someone at headquarters, hey, you know what? You are never going to be legat in China because, number one, we really need an ethnic Chinese person to take the position. Number two, you're a woman. And you will never get it. And so wow. I thought, well, I'm the kind of person that when somebody says, well, you can't do this, my philosophy is, well, why don't you go stand over there in the corner and watch me? So I knew that that slope was going to be pretty steep. So that's why I started applying for other LIAT positions first. And I applied for New Delhi, India. And I don't speak Hindi, but frankly, you don't really need that in India anyway. Most everyone that I dealt with speaks English. So I applied for India and got Liat New Delhi. And that was a wonderful experience because I had done a temporary duty assignment in India before for a couple of months. So I knew what I was getting into. Most people, they either hate India or they love it. And I was one of those people that loved it. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of hard work, but I did a good job. And then I was getting ready to transfer out of India and I got a phone call from FBI headquarters, from the International Operations Division. And they said, hey, the legal attache in Beijing is transferring out. And Director Mueller doesn't necessarily like the candidates who have applied. Because, and let me, let me just say why. China is a very, very difficult country to work in. I had done several temporary duty assignments in China when I was at FBI headquarters. I was a program manager for the build out of the new American embassy. So I knew exactly what the life was going to be like there. And you really have to have a perception of Chinese counterintelligence, what their capabilities are. And you have to also be aware that you're going to be walking on a tightrope the entire time you're there. And I think that when people apply to that position, they maybe didn't necessarily have the experience with the Chinese that I had had. And so they turned to me and they said, okay, you're transferring out of India. You speak the language. You have the background. You've been working Chinese counterintelligence for over a decade. Would you be willing to be Li at Beijing? And I was like, are you kidding? You know, I've been working my entire career for this position. Of course, I'll take it. So I was very fortunate 
that that just sort of came together at the right time. And I can't remember the person who told me that there would never be a woman in that job. But if you're out there and you remember, it's like, no. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, that must have been an amazing phone call to get to that point. Tell us a little bit more about working Chinese counterintelligence before you take up the position. So what types of things were you up to? Were there any cases that were particularly significant that are in the public domain? Yeah, give us a flavor of your activities before you become the legat in China. I actually started working Chinese counterintelligence in the mid-90s after I had spent two and a half years out in Monterey learning the language. My first experience with Chinese counterintelligence was in the New York City office. And at the time, Chinese counterintelligence wasn't really on the radar for the FBI. I mean, it was, but it wasn't as important as Russian counterintelligence, which was still very, very important. And even Cuban counterintelligence and other countries really seem to get more attention from FBI headquarters than Chinese counterintelligence. And obviously that changed as we move forward. I really can't speak to a lot of the investigations or the things that I did when I was in New York. And then later I transferred out of New York and went to San Francisco and it was the same thing. I worked Chinese counterintelligence. But when I went to FBI headquarters, my position there was to work with the intelligence community to make sure that when we built the new American embassy over in Beijing, that it wasn't a sieve like the U.S. embassy in Russia was. And so I worked with other U.S. government agencies to make sure that that building was built securely in every form, fashion, from the foundation, every screw, every nail, everything that went into that building was going to be secure. Now, that was completely eye-opening experience for me. And I learned so much about our capabilities as the U.S. government. I learned so much about Chinese capabilities. And I thought I knew a whole lot before I got there, but that was even more eye-opening so that was a phenomenal experience. And that's when I first got a taste of what it was like to work in China, because I went over and did several temporary duty assignments working on the site when the embassy was being built. So I think that's one of the things that added to the fact that I was asked to take the LEAP position because I knew what it was like to live in that environment, which is very difficult. And you literally knew every brick and screw and stone that was in the embassy as well. <laughs> Tell us about some of the challenges of doing your job in Beijing, because in the book you outline how it was basically just constant surveillance, constantly being watched. And when you answer that, just clear up for our listeners, you're not trying to recruit agents or run anybody, you're there for a different reason, but why are they putting so much energy into surveilling you if you're just meeting with a foreign counterpart or those types of things? First of all, the apartment building that I lived in was right across from the U.S. Embassy. We did not build that apartment building. The Chinese government built that apartment building. <laughs> so you can imagine what that was like. The Chinese are going to look at everybody at the U.S. Embassy because they have no idea who's actually CIA, 
who's another government intelligence service, they don't know. So they're going to watch everybody. And whenever I would meet with my counterparts at the MPS, Ministry of Public Security, they would say, so you're here to spy on us. You're a spy, aren't you? And I would say, no, I'm not. I'm with the FBI. I'm not here to spy. You know exactly why I'm here. This is what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. And of course, they said this about a half a dozen times. And during this time, every time I would go out to dinner, buy groceries, you name it, I was being followed. And I could always pick out the person who was following me. They Maybe they wanted to be obvious about it because they can be very good when they want to be. So maybe they just wanted me to know that, hey, we're watching you. And after a while, that type of surveillance fell off. But we all knew that we were being at least listened to in our apartments. So one day, it was I think it was a weekend day, and I was in our apartment, and Keith, my husband, had gone to the basement of our apartment building, which there was a dry cleaners there, and he went to pick up the dry cleaning or something. And when he was walking down the hallway in the basement, he noticed a door ajar. And he's like, well, that's kind of interesting because he saw a bunch of computers in there. So he sort of stepped inside and he saw all these computer monitors with Chinese people sitting in front of them. And he realized that on the screens were different areas of our apartment building. And someone turned around and noticed him. They slammed the door in his face and he raced back up the stairs. He's like, oh my God, you got to see this. And I went down there. Of course, the door was locked. We knew we were being watched. I don't know if there were cameras in my apartment, but we're pretty sure they were microphones. And for me, it didn't really bother me so much because I knew what to expect and I was already accustomed to it from having worked over there. But for Keith, it was a learning experience. <laughs> he, sometimes he would get really frustrated because we would come home and people go into your apartment when you're not there and move stuff around and and do things. And and he just would get so frustrated. And then we'd scream at the chandelier. And I don't know why he thought that the microphone was in the chandelier, but that seemed to be a good place to scream at. And so watching him, it was really hard for me because I knew that there was nothing we could do about the surveillance. And I was used to it. He wasn't necessarily accustomed to it yet. And there was nothing I could do about that. There was no way that I could help him get accustomed to that being in that bubble. We did do things like keep a notebook on our coffee table and we would write notes to each other. We would never talk about anything in our apartment that was important. And then later I would, when I would go to the office, I would shred all those notes, including the other two or three layers where the pencil marks were in case anyone's listening, that's good tradecraft. But when we left China, my husband said, because he carried our laptop everywhere we went. Every time we would leave the apartment, he would take our laptop. There was nothing on it except personal stuff, but we didn't want that messed up. And we're on the airplane. He's like, well, thank God I don't have to carry that goddamn laptop everywhere we go now. (laughs) So it's challenging, but you get accustomed to sort of locking yourself down when you're speaking with someone. And it took me such a long time when I came back to the United States to I would catch myself saying something, like, oh, can't say that, oh, and I better be quiet. It takes a while to sort of come back around and be yourself again. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. 
You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So maybe we can go on to discuss some of the things that you outline in the book about the working culture and the types of hours that you worked and the kind of environment and stuff. So just before we get going in that story, tell us about the FBI that you found when you joined up, Kathy. What kind of institution did you encounter? Put that in some context, given where you are now and what you've seen. Give us a sense of that young woman that joins the FBI and, and finds herself part of this institution and its culture at that moment in time. I was 25 when I joined the FBI in 1987, and there were about 600 women out of about 10,000 agents. I was incredibly naive. I had no idea what I was up against. And I just want to say this ahead of time. I worked with some phenomenal male agents, absolutely wonderful guys. I don't want anyone to think that I think that the FBI is full of just a bunch of male chauvinists misogynist male agents, because that's not true. However, the FBI that I joined was, there were still a lot of men who had been hired during the Hoover era, and they felt that women didn't belong. And when I got to the FBI Academy, one of those men who felt like I didn't belong was my firearms instructor. And I talk about this in the book about how he actually tried to get me kicked out of the FBI Academy. So that was my first experience in the FBI. But like I said earlier, I'm a pretty strong person. And when somebody says no, I'm that just makes me want it more. And when I got to my first field office, which was Alexandria, Virginia, that was actually pretty good. I worked on a special governmental fraud case and we were a pretty close group. So for the most part, there were men that I encountered and they were pretty obvious about how they felt about women and how women shouldn't be in the FBI. And I, I talk about a couple of those in the book, but as my career progressed and then when I became a legat, what I found was, at least this is my experience, that there were sometimes men who didn't necessarily want a woman in more of a leadership role. And I talk about that in particular when I was in Beijing. There's one chapter that it was probably the lowest point of my entire FBI career. And it really involved uh, some male agents who they knew that what was happening was wrong and they knew that I had done nothing wrong. But they actually said to me, it's like, well, we know that you didn't do anything wrong, but we can't go against the guys. And that's when I knew that, you know what, has anything really changed and then when I retired and I was actually writing the book, I saw the the case that was brought by several females because of the, some firearms instructors when they were going through the academy. And I thought, well, there you go. That's still going on. And then most recently, we've seen in the news where some agents got in trouble because the gymnasts who were being sexually assaulted came to the FBI and nothing happened. And 
my first thought when I read that was it's like, well, they didn't listen to these young women because they were young women. Sometimes you have guys who they dismiss what a woman has to say. And unfortunately, I think that that is still a prevalent opinion in the Bureau. And that's not to say that the FBI hasn't changed. It has. There are more women in leadership positions. There are male agents who are evolved, very much evolved, and appreciate strong women. But it has a ways to go. And one of the things that I tell the young women who reach out to me, because I have a lot of women who have reached out to me on my email via my website once the book was published, I tell them, if you want to join the FBI, you go into the organization and you change it. Don't let it change you. Because I do believe that the FBI will evolve to be a better organization if there are more women on the job and if there are more minorities and it is diverse. It has to reflect our society, and our society is very diverse. I'm sure there's a lot of internal diversity in different types of people, but just a kind of pen portrait of a a few of the different sort of groupings of people that you came across. There are a lot of agents, mostly male, who at the time they came from the military. And so they had this very militaristic style of how they handle themselves. And well, if you're with the military, then you understand me. And they're much more focused on working with other people who are former military. Same with police officers. You would have a lot of former police officers in the FBI. So you sort of have that type of grouping mentality, but not as much as you would think. So as far as tribes are concerned, I would say not so much as more of just those people, those male agents who felt like, well, I'm a man and I deserve to be here. And this is not necessarily a woman's place. You talk about some of that in the book about how, as a female leader, the way that it can potentially impact how you present yourself every day to your colleagues or to your superiors or to the people that work under you. Tell us a little bit more about that. I think that that performative aspect is really, really interesting. I really didn't pay attention to how people viewed me as a person, as a woman, as an agent until I went overseas. And 99.99% of the time, I was the only woman in the room. And the FBI has this mystique all over the world. It just never ceased to amaze me how everybody just looks at the FBI like, oh my gosh, you can do anything. I wish we could. But (laughs) they would have this opinion or this perception of what the FBI is like. And then I would walk into a room, this tall female, and I had on what was to them looked like a man's suit. And I got a little bit paranoid about how I was viewed because people sort of wondered, is she a woman? Is she a man? She's wearing men's clothing. I'm not sure what she is here. So that's when I really started to realize that I did, I wore a suit, you know, it was very conservative, dark suit, white shirt, blah, blah, blah. It was sort of my uniform. And I realized that it sort of was a uniform and it sort of was sort of my, I call it my Stargate shield in the book. It's what I put on in order to be that personality, be that person that I felt like I needed to be as an FBI agent. And toward the end of my career, I realized how much I had changed because of that. I had changed in order to fit that persona. 
And I had become, I think, more of a colder person. And maybe that's just normal in order to deal with certain situations. You just sort of shut down how you would be normally emotionally. But I think that most female agents have some tendency to put on their own version of a Stargate shield when they walk into a room and there's only men there or when they're a certain situation. It's really interesting psychologically now to look back on that, look back on myself and look back at the women that I worked with and how they each handled it. So now it's it's uh, it's kind of nice to be free and wear what I want and be more myself. But I do encourage <laughs> young women to go into the FBI and be yourself. Yes, you have to play a certain part and yes, you have to dress professionally, but that doesn't mean that you have to take on a more masculine persona in order to do your job. And I felt like I did sometimes in order to be able to function. Do you know what the figures are now for the FBI? So you said it was 600 women out of 10,000 people. Do you know where it's at at the moment? I think it hasn't really improved much more than what it was. And I do know that the FBI is really trying to focus on hiring more women. I have seen advertisements throughout the United States where when the FBI like has a recruitment drive, they will try to focus on attracting women. So the FBI knows that they need more women on the job. And there for a while, they did really well. Like right after 9-11, a lot of people really wanted to join the FBI. They were being very patriotic and, and they wanted to do their part. And that sort of tapered off in maybe the mid-early 2000s. And then the numbers went down for women. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if we weren't recruiting as many women as we should have or if women just weren't that attracted to a job with the FBI. But they are trying to improve that. And I'm very, very happy. I'm very happy to see that. And one of the things I'm so proud of for this book is that I have gotten hundreds of emails in response. And the majority of those emails are from young women who think they want to join the FBI. So they ask me questions or they're already in the process of going to the academy and they want advice. And not one single woman has been completely turned off by what I've written in my book. As a matter of fact, they've all been like, you know what? Thank you for your honesty. Now I know what to expect. Now I know what I need to do. And that's that's just been one of the most phenomenal things that's happened since my book was published. So I'm very happy about it. Do you think that part of this, and I'm just speculating here, but you mentioned the work culture, the fact that it's all hands on deck and it's extremely time-consuming and extremely stressful. Do you think that that work culture is part of it? And we know that certain roles and responsibilities fall disproportionately upon women. And studies have said that that is some of the reasons why they don't stick around or they don't get up to senior leadership positions. So yeah, as someone that proved everybody wrong and became the legat in China. I really admire your drive and your fortitude. What are your views on that? Do you think that the culture has to change or is it just we're going to the wrong markets or yeah, give us a kind of thought on that? It's funny you should ask that question because I was having this conversation on another podcast with a female agent. We were discussing about how 
most women in leadership in the FBI are either not married or they do not have children. And why is that? And for the most part, most female agents who are married, they end up marrying a male agent. So they marry the FBI. And it's really interesting because the woman that I was talking to, she was married to a non-FBI person, and I am married to a non-FBI person. And that's very unusual for a female agent. And so the question is, can a woman who is married and or does have children, can she move up that ladder? Can she have a family and do the job at the same time? And my feeling is absolutely. I mean, I know women who are married, they have children. And for the most part, when the children are young, yes, they may have to take a position within the FBI that will give them more stability. Like for instance, they will stay in the same field office for several years in order to get their children through school. But it's possible. I've seen it done. And I think that maybe there's a perception out there with the general public that as a woman, you can't have a family. You can't be married. You can't have a normal life. And really, you're not going to have a normal life. The FBI is not a normal job, and that's a given. But it is possible to have all those things that you want. You can have a partner. You can have a spouse. You can have children. It's going to take some juggling, and you're going to have to have a spouse who is extremely understanding. And that I am very, very lucky and fortunate that my husband, he followed my career. He was willing to follow my career at the expense of his own, although he was always able to work. And then I say that and I realize that it's harder for women to find a spouse or a partner who is like that, who is going to say, okay, I'm going to put your career first. I will follow you. I'll take care of all of this other house stuff, family stuff while you do your job. So I think what I really want to say is for all you women who are interested in the FBI and you want a spouse or a partner who is going to be supportive, you need to find a very enlightened person. I was asked a question at a presentation once and they were like, what kind of man follows his wife's career? And my answer was a very enlightened one. <laughs> so... Find yourself a very enlightened partner and you'll be just fine. And I think that, that what you just mentioned there, that's also one of the factors that's involved in all of this, right? So it's a societal thing as well, right? Where the norms yeah. are that men are expected to do certain things and, and women are not. And I, I love the way that you play with that and the title of the book. It's not about the gun. Just to piggyback on that thought, the thought would be like, the man, he has to be masculine. It's like the gun and put your hands up, you SOB or whatever. But you're <laughs> saying it's it's not it's not about the gun. It's really about something else. The gun is a tool to get the job done, but it's actually about something else. It is. And that title actually came about because when I was overseas, I worked in countries where the general populace, they don't carry guns. And I never really worried about being out and about by myself. I mean, I could be out in the middle of the night in most of the countries I worked in, never thinking a thing about it. And then when I came back to the United States, I realized I have to start carrying myself differently. And you could be stopped at a stoplight and look over at somebody uh, the wrong way and they just might shoot you. And so I realized that 
What I had done was I had gotten accustomed to doing my job without a gun. And that really kind of surprised me because everyone that you meet, whether it's the United States or overseas, people would line up to meet with me. And they, the first thing they would say is, so is it true? Do you carry a gun? People are so fascinated by that gun. And they think that the job of the FBI has to always involve a gun. And it doesn't. It doesn't at all. You're absolutely sure there are some jobs, some aspects of the Bureau where you need that gun and it's very important to have one. However, there are other jobs within the FBI where it really is not about the gun. A couple of things that you mentioned I find really, really fascinating. So one of them was when an individual encounters an institution, there's a back and forth relationship there. You're coming at the institution with a particular point of view or your particular type of person and the institution may be very different. And then there is always a negotiation going on between do I keep staying in and try to change it like small pieces at a time or do I get so far in that I just sort of end up getting fed up and quit or do I end up just staying so long that I become institutionalized and I become part of that institutional culture and the young Turks that come along view me as part of the problem. So I think that that individual institution relationship is really fascinating. And the other one is going overseas. I found it really fascinating when you were saying that you would come home and you would have to re-reflect on what it meant to be an American or you would go overseas and you had to reflect on what it meant to be a woman. So you can call that the Disseus complex or something. You're away for 20 years and, and you come home and you're not really sure who you are anymore and you're, and you're reinterpreting your identity and your citizenship. So talk us about that. Talk us about Kathy and the FBI and Kathy, the American who goes overseas and comes back. I really appreciate the way that you put that because I didn't realize when I came back from the United States that that examination of myself and my country was actually going on. And I probably didn't, I mean, I knew it when I got back to the San Francisco office, because that was the office I went to after Beijing. I had changed. And I thought, I initially thought, well, everybody else has changed. So the FBI has changed. What's wrong here? I'm not, I couldn't get my messages across to people. Uh, I had had this experience. I had looked at the organization and especially what we were doing with China from this sort of eagle eye view, but yet I couldn't make anyone understand it. And I thought, well, what's happened to everybody? And then I realized it's not the organization. The organization stayed the same. It was me that had changed. And my perception of the organization really started to refocus after I got back home. And, and that's when I made the decision to retire. You know, I thought, you know what, it, it's time for me to go. I feel like I can no longer contribute. I don't know if I even fit in anymore. And then I had to take a look at my country. Is the world looking at the United States as the leader it once did? And is the FBI being looked at the way it once was? And unfortunately, I think that the answer to those questions are no. I, do, I think the rest of the world looks at us now and then they sort of question what we're doing. And if this can happen to the United States, it can happen to anybody. And then, of course, the perception of the FBI has changed because of a lot of media. And 
it's really too bad. I mean, the, the organization, it's a good organization. It's full of good people who, for the most part, want to do a good job, but it also does need to evolve. It should never have been politicized, and it's been politicized for the last four plus years. When I was in the FBI, we never talked politics, ever. I had no idea who was a Democrat, who was a Republican. My very best friend, who was my maid of honor at my wedding, I had no idea if she was a Democrat or Republican until we were retired because you just, there was no politics. Your job was to work for the United States. Your job was to work for the U.S. citizenry. And that was without question. And I think all that has changed. So having to go back and examine who I am now, who I was then, how the FBI is being viewed both domestically and internationally, how the U.S. is being viewed domestically and internationally. I have really tried to take the time to examine that. And I hope that other people within the, the federal government is taking the time to take a look at that because perceptions are everything. I find it fascinating. The relationships between you and the FBI and you going overseas and coming back home and the politics of the country, like all of those elements that are in flux within you, I think are they come across in the book and I think they're really interesting and I'm sure that's going to come across in the creative nonfiction uh, MFA that you're doing at the moment. So I look forward to reading more of your future work, Kathy. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and one of the things that I find interesting in the book as well is that you mention the friends that you made overseas and how that relationship would continue or not continue after you left the country or after you left the FBI. And and you bring up the case of India and China. And for China, you outline that it's just not going to happen. Their government's not going to let it happen. If I keep working in the FBI and have Chinese friends, I'm going to be under constant there's going to be a constant question mark. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about that because that's a hard thing as well. I haven't done it as much as you or had as rich a career as you, but I have lived in lots of different places. And that is an interesting thing that goes on when you make friends and then you leave them and you have to move on. And yeah, help us understand that. It was much easier when I was in India and I covered India and Nepal and the Maldives and Sri Lanka and I made such wonderful friends in that area of the world, just warm, incredibly friendly colleagues. And I still keep in touch with a lot of them because those countries are not high threat intelligence countries. China is a different story. China is a very high threat country. And I met a lot of people in China and I was able to speak Chinese with them. And for the most part, the Chinese people who are not in the government, they're like anybody else in the world. They're just trying to make a living. They have their families. They have their lives. They just want to live a simple life. And it was incredibly gratifying to get to know and speak with a lot of those people. And some of them over the years would say to me, I really want to keep in touch with you. Can I have your email? I'm going to give you mine and let's keep in touch. And I knew that that would never happen because the surveillance aspect of the Chinese government is, is phenomenal. And whether some of these people are being watched or not, if they have anything to do with me, they're probably being watched. 
And I would never, ever, ever want one of them to be hurt, interrogated, or their families hurt because of any relationship that I would have with them, even if it was just via email. So whenever at the, when I was getting ready to leave and and so many of them were like, oh, can we keep in touch? And I was like, sure. I would give them an email and I did hear from some of them, but I never responded because I knew that I couldn't. And I knew when I said to them, when I walked away, it's like, I am never going to talk to you again. I'm never going to see you again. You're never going to hear from me because you don't hear from me. You, you're probably thinking that I'm this terrible liar that I never had any intention to maintain a friendship, which is true, but not for the reasons that they think. And that was really heartbreaking because like I said, working with the Chinese government was one thing. It was very difficult at times, but there were some wonderful people that I met along the way who were just the hairdresser, the the egg lady at the wet market when I would go buy groceries, the tea lady. It was just getting to know these people and their lives and how they felt. And I'm so grateful for the experience that I had. But what is really sad is that I know that I'll never see them again. Number one, because I'll never go back to China, but it's just impossible to maintain contact. I think that could make quite an interesting New Yorker essay, the the friends I kept in touch with and those I didn't, dot, 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 and about the different experience of you see the email in your inbox and you're like, I just can't respond. We had our moment in time where our lives intersected, but I can't allow that to continue. It has to die for these reasons, but with your Indian friends, then it can continue. And that's two very different human responses to human relationships. Sorry, I'm getting carried away here. I find it really interesting. (laughs) And tell us a little bit more about Keith, if you're you're amenable to talking about it, because he's part of your journey as well. And we've heard a little bit about him in the background, but it sounds like he's been very supportive and has followed you around. So tell us a little bit more about him. Keith is, uh, like I said, he's a very enlightened man. I met him when I had about three or four years on the job. So I was already an agent. And by that time, I realized that men were fascinated by a female agent. They were fascinated by a woman who carried a gun, but they didn't necessarily want a relationship with one. (laughs) And that was pretty common across the board with all my other female agent friends. And so when we would go out, we would just sort of get to the point where we would lie about what we did just make up anything and men believed it. And then when you told them the truth, it's like, hmm. And then all you would see is like their dust disappearing over the horizon. And the night I met Keith, of course, I initially lied. I was with two other friends and I lied about what I did. And we spent hours talking. I knew right away that he was special. We just really clicked. And at the end of the night, he said, May I call you? Because he lived in New York City. I was living in Washington, D.C. And he goes, I travel a lot for my job. Can I give you a call? And I said, sure. So he said, well, give me your contact information. So I was like, okay, this is it. This is the break moment. And so I gave him a business card, which had my name and all the information on it. And he took a look at it and he hesitated (laughs) for about (laughs) 15 seconds and he said, you know what? That's really cool. 
And that's all he said. And then, of course, I thought, well, you know, I'll never hear from this guy again. And I happened to be in New York City at the time when I met him. And I was got back home to Washington, D.C. the next day. And as soon as I turned the key in my lock, the phone was ringing. And it was Keith. And lo and behold, he had called. And as our relationship progressed, I realized that he was really special. He was very supportive of me as a woman. He was supportive of my career. He knew that I worked counterintelligence, but never once did he say, oh, come on, tell me. You can tell me I won't tell anybody. Because he knew that everything I did was classified. Never once did he ask or try to be a part of that world. And then we got married. I really tried to let him meet everybody that I worked with. And I write in the book about how the very first time that Keith gets to be a part of my world was before we went overseas to India and spouses were allowed to go to two weeks training at Quantico. And he was like this little kid. He was so fascinated (laughs) by everything that we got to do, everything that he learned. And I stopped to realize then, would I have been as supportive of him had he been the agent? not being able to tell me anything and me being the person on the outside, would I have been as supportive as he has been to me? And if I'm being honest, I would have to say no. (laughs) (laughs) So he's truly a special guy. He's, he's enlightened. He loves strong women. He's had female bosses. I've never heard him say anything negative about a female boss, women that he's worked with. Not once. He's unusual and I'm incredibly lucky to be his partner and a spouse. I bet women that are listening to this are probably thinking, where do I find my Keith? I don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any recommendations. Maybe the spy museum. I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, there's going to be spies at the spy museum. You can't trust spies. <laughs> I don't mean to embarrass you, but the New York field office, San Francisco, they've got to be two of the best places to work. Chinese counter espionage in the country. You know every screw and brick that went into the embassy. You were the legat there. You speak the language. Are people tapping into your knowledge or or do they just have to buy the book? I think sometimes the FBI is a bit short-sighted, which is one of the things that I realized when I came back from China. I had worked overseas. I had worked in China. I had been in that world. I knew a whole lot more about Chinese intelligence and counterintelligence than most of my counterparts. Yet there wasn't an interest in learning what I had learned and maybe teaching that to some of the agents, newer agents coming up who needed to know a little bit more about Chinese counterintelligence. And I always said this when I was a legal attache, whether it was about China or India, I always said that the FBI needed to take a larger responsibility in taking all that information and intelligence and and experience that a legal attache has, regardless of the country that they're in, and then feeding that back into the agents who are working domestically. Because I think it's so important for them, you know, they may be working one aspect of an investigation, but they don't know what the larger picture looks like. They don't know what it looks like from an eagle eye view. And I always felt like that that piece was missing. I hope that's changed in the FBI. I hope that the FBI takes advantage of that experience and that knowledge. I don't know if it's happening. In my case, I know they didn't. It's going to be so 
interesting for me to speak at the NCSC next month because I'm really curious as to what they want to know. I'm really curious as to what they're interested in because I don't know if anyone since I was in China or in any of the countries I covered, if, if any of that knowledge and experience has been filtered down to them at all. It'll be really interesting to see. I can't wait. I'm excited. Yeah. I think a lot of institutions struggle with that, right? Like from the experience that you've gained, the lessons that you've learned from mistakes and successes and so forth. It's crazy that someone else has to come in and start from scratch and make all those mistakes over again and learn all that experience over again. And of course, part of it is that you've got to be in the game to learn how to play it better. But there are also things that you can do that set you up for success. And part of that, I think, is is learning the lessons from other people. So I was just thinking there, why do you think that is? Do you think it's just because their their horizon is so short term? It's just what's in front of us. We don't really have time to look back or or distill what other people have learned. Or do you think it's partly careerism? Say, for example, you come back from being the legat, you come into a field office You've got this experience that they don't have. Your boss, your colleagues might feel threatened by your experience. So they they don't open up that avenue. They're just like, it's kind of easier if we just don't bring that up with her because subconsciously or whatever, I feel threatened. So who does she think she is? I've been here longer than her. I deserve to get promoted. There's not really that, just as someone (laughs) that has been in a few institutions as well, there's not often a sense of humility. Would you agree with that? I do. I I think that unfortunately, there are quite a few people in the FBI. They don't necessarily care about the work itself. They're more concerned with their career trajectory and what's their next step up the ladder. How far up the rung can they go? And I saw a lot of that, especially when I came back. And sometimes people look at the FBI and they look at certain investigations and certain things that are going on in the organization and they think, well, what's the sexiest thing I can do right now? Because I don't necessarily care about Kathy's knowledge about intelligence. There's something sexier going on over there. And if I become a part of that, then I'll get noticed. So I'm sure you've seen this as well. There are some people who their careers, they really and truly care about the job. They really care about what they're doing. They care about the United States and they want to do the best that they can and learn everything they can. And then there are other people. Yes, there's jealousy involved. There are people who are very comfortable in their positions. A lot of agents want to stay in the same field office their entire career. They don't want to move around. They don't want to have other positions because they do get comfortable. And it's tough to move. It's really difficult to pick up your life and go someplace else. And I think that there's a certain comfort level that people get in and they think, well, I don't want to open that can of worms because then I might have to work harder if I discover something that I need to take care of. So I think it's a whole host of things. I really do. And I think a lot of young people, young agents, they want to hurry up and climb that ladder without gaining the knowledge and gaining the experience that they need. And I found a lot of that when I came back from China too. I'd reach out to headquarters and try to talk to them about certain intelligence things, and they would have no clue what I was talking about. I can't tell you how many times I would actually say to an agent, 
why don't you let me tell you how to do your job? (laughs) Because they just weren't making sense to me. And again, that's when I had to sit back and go, is it me that's changed or has the bureau changed? And I realized that I was the one that had changed Hmm. and it was time for me to move on. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak to you, Kathy. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you too. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. 